0: Let's open the Scriptures together <clears throat> to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4 in the Pew Bible, page 189, 189. Here we find Moses addressing the Israelites. He addresses them about, particularly about uh, idol worship. He warns them against bowing down or worshiping the foreign gods among the nations that surround Israel. And as we read this passage, I want you to see how he connects it with uh, creation. There's certain things that uh, are found among the idols of the nations that uh, track back to Genesis 1, and we hope to see some of those connections. So just keep your eye out for any connections to the creating work of God. We start at verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bowed down to them and serve them. "'Things that the Lord your God has allotted "'to all the peoples under the whole heaven. "'But the Lord has taken you "'and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt "'to be a people of His own inheritance "'as you are this day. "'Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, "'and He swore that I should not cross the Jordan "'and that I should not enter the good land "'that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, "'for I must die in this land.' I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children, and have grown old in the land, If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him, if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that He swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or has ever was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for Himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice, that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you see His great fire. And you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Our text then comes from Genesis 1, first page of the Bible. Last week we dealt with the opening verses. This week we'll focus on verses 3 through 25, basically the, the bulk of the six days of God's creating work. But just to refresh us with the context, we'll begin reading at verse 1. "'In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good.' And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, "'Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth according or across the expanse of the heavens.'" So God created the great sea creatures We're going to pause there, and next time, the Lord willing, take up the creation of man, but we have plenty to deal with this morning. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from Psalm 96, the stanzas 3, 6, 7, and 8. And also there is praise for our God as Creator and Savior. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, I mentioned last week as we began to dive into Genesis that it was good to do so because there are many issues of faith rooted in these opening chapters. There are here a number of teachings that impact how we understand God, how we understand the world, and our salvation. And in our day, it seems we have more questions than ever, perhaps also doubts and uncertainties and on a number of issues, unsettled minds. Well, beloved, we are not alone. We're not the first generation to struggle with these kinds of questions. The very, very first readers of Genesis, the people to whom Moses was writing, not just the book of Genesis, but to whom he wrote the first five books of the Bible right through Deuteronomy, they also had their struggles and their questions. Moses wrote these five books while the Israelites were wandering around in the desert and while they were waiting to enter into the promised land. They were the first audience for these books. You know and will remember that God had rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. He had set them free to worship Him, to serve Him, but the people didn't know their God very well. They had spent 400 plus years in Egypt taking in Egyptian culture, seeing life the way the Egyptians saw life, understanding the world and the world of the gods who lived in the skies the way the Egyptians saw it. That's how Israel was learning to absorb and learning to see the world. They had learned to think like an Egyptian, talk like an Egyptian, maybe even to walk like an Egyptian. Moses had seen the people make an idol out of the golden calf, exactly like they had seen done in Egypt. Moses had heard the Israelites cry out that they might be allowed to return to Egypt rather than stay with the Lord and put their trust in their God. So it turns out that you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's a whole other thing and a lot more challenging to take the Egypt out of the people. That is something only God can do, and He can do it, because He is the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. So the Holy Spirit through Moses in Genesis 1, He tells the story, the true historical account, It's not a made-up story, the story of how the covenant God of Israel created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them so that the Israelites would learn, so that we also would learn to love this Creator, to trust Him with all our hearts, and to never be afraid. With that in mind, I bring you this word of the Lord, Take courage in your God, creation's master. Take courage in your God, creation's master. We'll see two things, that He shaped all creation, And He fills all the earth. Well, before we get into the the details of our text, I just want to stand back with you a moment and look at the the forest, look at the whole picture for a a minute. We read in our text that God created all that exists in the span of six days. In a few moments, we'll talk about the nature of those days, but I, I just want you to see for a second the pattern that God lays down in these six days. For those six days, they fall neatly into two groups of three, three parallel groupings. It goes like this. On day one, God created the light. On day four, second grouping of three, on day four, God created what? The light bearers, those heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars, which hold light. On day two, God created, or separated rather, the earth from the sky, the waters above from the waters below, and then on day five, what did God do? God filled the sky with the birds, and He filled the oceans, the waters below, with fish and other creatures. Then on day three, God caused land to appear and brought forth vegetation, plants and trees, and on day six, God created the land animals and finally man himself to populate the land that had appeared on the third day. So you see that everything corresponds with its, uh, its counterpart. There is a, a beautiful harmony and symmetry in God's stunning work of creation. And now compare the end of the Six days with the beginning. Can you see what God is is driving at? What God is doing here? The Holy Spirit told us in verse 2 that after God's first act of creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was found to be without form and void. That means the earth didn't have any, any shape to speak of, it was empty. Basically, there was just oodles and oodles of water everywhere, but there was no land and there was no life of any kind. Then God begins to take what we could call this huge lump of clay, so to speak. I mean, He's the potter, the earth is the clay. And God began to fashion this lump of clay and add things to it so that by day six, this whole lump has been transformed The heavens and the earth are now fully shaped, fully formed, and the earth is no longer empty, but the earth is full with plants of all kinds, creatures of all kinds, and the first two human beings with the command to populate the earth. So when you stand back, you see this. On days one, two, and three, God is busy giving form to the earth and to the heavens above, Separating light from darkness, separating earth from sky, separating land from water. And then on days 4, 5, and 6, what does God do? He fills the earth and the heavens and the waters below with all manner of living creatures. This world, in other words, beloved, this world was, was carefully crafted, shaped, and molded so that life would thrive in it. That's the goal the Creator was shooting for and obtained it. And this tells us something about our God. Our God loves life. He's the Creator of life. That makes Him the Lord of life. You know, we look around in the world today and we experience in the world today so much death. So much sickness which leads to death and pain and misery of all kinds. But understand from our passage that this was never God's intention. It was never God's idea, let alone was it God's doing that we have all of this death and sickness and misery. At the beginning, He started out with an unformed world and an empty world but he didn't leave it there in a a state where life couldn't possibly exist it was his great desire to shape creation so that it could support life in all of its many forms with beings who would happily live and, and thrive under his care and lordship and that's the same great desire for life that has moved the heart of our Creator to send us the Savior, Jesus, to rescue us from all that grief and pain and sorrow which we humans brought into the world. Once we foolishly chose death against the Creator's command, but the Creator of life, what did He do? He chose to enter death himself in Jesus so that we might be restored to life, beloved. Already from that angle, put your trust, put your hope in Him, in this God who, who shaped all of creation for the love of life He wants us to live. Now let's look at some of the details. Verse 3, the opening verse of our text, comes with a simple command, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Instantly, this shows God's absolute power, His total control. God just just voices His will, and no sooner has He done so than His command takes place. Snap, there there was light, just pops into existence. Now we might wonder at this point, now why didn't God simply say, let the earth and the heavens be completed in their totality and in their full perfection? Why didn't God just create everything that exists in an instant? Why spread it out? Did God have to create the heavens and the earth in in stages? Was it too much for Him to create it all at once? Well, to ask the question is to already know the answer. course is no. For the same God who called into existence the unformed mass of the earth and the heavens in just a moment of time, and the same God who called light to appear could also quite easily have brought the finished product into existence. It's, it's not an issue of a lack of ability for God. Instead, we read over and over again in our text, and there was evening, and there was morning, First day, the second day, the third day. In His wisdom, God deliberately chose to create the world this way in six days, and He specifically chose to reveal that fact to us. Remember, there was no humans around when God created all this, all that there is. Now, before we go too much further, we need to say something about these days and how long They were because that's a major point of controversy in our time. Do we take these days as as literal days or are these special days of extraordinary length? That's been the hot debate for the last hundred years or so, even among serious minded Christians. And you know, that little fact is helpful to know. That this debate about the length of days is fairly recent when you consider the whole history of understanding Genesis. Up until the 18th century, so the 1700s, there was virtually no disagreement among the theologians and among the pastors and among uh, believers in general. There was basically no disagreement. Everybody was of the understanding that what Genesis 1 taught were six days of ordinary length days as we know them today. Well, what happened in the 1700s that people started to change their thinking? What happened was this thing called the Enlightenment. Basically, it was the rise of a certain philosophy, a certain way of looking at the world, and science was also coming into its own. So those two things combined, and people, scientists, even theologians, they started to question... They started to question whether the Bible was accurate as a whole. They said, you know, this is just another book, right? Like so many ancient books. Can we really take it as the Word of God? That doesn't seem likely. There was lots of books written long ago. It's just a book. That was one part of what they started to question. And along with that, they started to question Genesis 1 itself. The real push came in the 1800s when Charles Darwin proposed his theory of evolution, which states that all of life developed by chance from a, a microscopic amoeba over the course of millions and millions of years. This is where the philosophy comes in, you see. They, they call it science, but understand it's philosophy, it's ideas about the origins of life. Why is it philosophy and not science? Well, There's no hard facts here. Science can only claim that something is a fact when they can experiment and, and by way of experiment, reproduce the results so that by repeated experiment, the scientific conclusion can be validated. But you can't do that with the origin of the world, can you? Even today, the Big Bang Theory remains exactly that, a theory with with improvable tenets. No one can run an experiment and repeat the Big Bang. No one can verify that such a thing ever actually occurred. No one can test the hypothesis that life sprung forth out of non-life in the ocean billions of years ago. These are guesses. The world presents it as fact, but don't get taken in by that. They're just guesses, un Provable hypotheses, ideas. You see, brothers and sisters, when it comes down to it, evolution is just a matter, as much a matter of belief and faith as creation is. Actually, it's much more a matter of belief because the very idea that luck or chance caused all that we know and see and experience to, to come into existence. The idea that luck produced that, well, that's just incredulous, isn't it? Now, that's evolution, which put a challenge on these whole days, the interpretation of the days. In Reformed circles even today and elsewhere, there are Christians who don't want to deny God's existence, who don't want to say that God wasn't part of it, like Charles Darwin said, but they look at Genesis 1, and they they look at science, and they they see that that God could possibly have used evolution to bring about creation. They've got a name for that. They call that theistic evolution, basically God-ordained evolution. So they look at Genesis 1 not as a literal historical account, but as poetry, or a poetic story of some kind, the idea of which is to give us the basic gist that it was God's creative work, but we can't take the details as historical fact. It tells us that God, that God created the earth, but not precisely how He did it or in what order He did it. There's not even a chronology present, they say, in Genesis 1. It's just an impression of what God did. Well, that kind of interpretation of Genesis 1 would allow for long periods of time because they, they take the days there as metaphors, you see. Not as literal days, but as metaphors for long ages of time, periods of time that, that could go on and on for billions of years if necessary. So, I just want to pause and point out this point I mentioned earlier because it's very important to understand the theologians, they they have begun to change their perspective on Genesis 1. Why? Because of the pressures of science, you see. Science propagated by unbelievers. There's There's a lot of unbelieving scientists that have, over the last 200 years or so, put forward this theory of evolution, and they seem from Certain perspectives to have a lot going for them in their theories, and under that pressure, some theologians have reinterpreted Genesis 1. But, brothers and sisters, the scientific theories of man must never guide the understanding of the Bible. God's word has to trump science, not the other way around. And if you simply read Genesis 1, as we did, whether you read it in Hebrew or in English. What is unmistakable is its straight talk. This is not poetry like you find in the book of Psalms or in the book of Job. This is simple, even sober, yet still beautiful in its simplicity, a beautiful recounting of what God did in creating the heavens and the earth. And when, when a child reads this, I mean, when all the boys and girls here heard me read this this morning, These words, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and evening and morning the second day, and evening and morning the third day, and so on. What do the children think? Do they think, well, this is probably long ages of time? No. They think the same as all adults who take this at face value think, this is just an ordinary day, a day like we all know. Same length with a morning and an evening. What more could Moses do to impress upon the readers that the time span of these days is the same as any other day? There's no indication in this passage or anywhere in Scripture that the days of creation are anything other than ordinary long days. Think of how the Lord Himself underlines that in the fourth commandment, Exodus 20. For in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, you, Israel, you believers, work six days and rest the seventh. If the six days of creation are not literal days, then God's own reason for setting aside the seventh day falls apart. The parallel would be meaningless. So, I hope that you leave here with many thoughts this morning, brothers and sisters, but if it's only this one thought, just one thought, let it be this. Let it be this. If you do not take Genesis 1 as straight up historical fact as it presents itself here, what will stop you from taking Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 in the same way? And indeed, this is where theistic evolution will logically take you just go and read some of the theistic evolutionists and where they're going with their thinking it takes you to a place where you lose the first adam where you've got no fall into sin where death is just part of life and not the result of sin and the salvation of the last adam jesus well that pretty well gets emptied of its meaning You've got to take this straight up. That's how God wrote it. Let's go back to the details. Verse 3, into the darkness of an earth that is as yet without form and empty, into that darkness suddenly comes light. And then we notice, and then notice what Moses says next, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The light is called good. Notice that the darkness is not called good. That doesn't mean the darkness is evil. We're living in a time uh, before the fall into sin, so uh, the word good here does not necessarily mean good as the opposite of evil. It does mean that elsewhere in Scripture at times, but here it means something like the light is fitting. The light is appropriate for its purpose. The light is useful for what God intends to use it for. That makes it good. You might think, for example, of a a pen. You take up a pen, but there's no ink in the pen. That's not good, right? You can't get any work done with an inkless pen. A train without tracks to run on can't work, so it also is not good. Darkness by itself is not fitting. It's not useful for the life that God has in mind to create, but light is good for that, and that's why light is declared good. Do you remember how God would later use light for Israel to symbolize His presence? He did it in the pillar of fire by night in the golden lampstand in the tabernacle and in that brightly lit shekinah cloud of glory that came down on the tabernacle and if we think about how after sin came into the world isn't it true that darkness like physical darkness has become something foreboding doesn't darkness trigger fear in us at times the bible says elsewhere that evil loves darkness but notice God dispels the darkness, the physical kind and the spiritual kind. As He did in the beginning, God in Christ is now the light of the world. We read that last week. Jesus is the light of the world. He breaks up our darkness. He breaks up our fear caused by our sin. And you know, when we have a morning, we have a morning, of course, every day, morning time is what? It's the end of night. The dawn puts an end to the darkness And each morning again, brothers and sisters, be assured of God's love for you, God's faithfulness toward you, as God sends you and me fresh light. His mercies are new every morning. Every sunrise is a reminder that God in Jesus promises us an eternal morning, a new creation in which there will no longer be any darkness or night. Listen to this from Revelation 22. John sees the vision of the new Jerusalem and the new earth and he says the night will be no more. The believers will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Light has overcome the dark. So on days 1, 2, and 3, we learn three things. God creates light, separates it from the darkness. God creates the sky and separates the waters above from the waters below. God shapes the earth so that dry land appears and the waters recede into oceans and seas and rivers and so on. Now, if you were an Israelite, place yourself there in the middle of the camp of Israel, wandering in the desert, what impact might hearing these truths have on you? If you were part of that generation that was preparing to cross the Jordan River to face down the giant Nephilim as well as all the armies of Canaan, what message would there be in, in this opening chapter of God's Word for you? Well, the message is, my people, don't be afraid. If your covenant God has the kind of power it takes to create all the land that exists and all the living beings on the whole earth, why is it any problem for Him to give you that little piece of land called the land of Canaan? And can a tribe of giants or human armies... Created by God even so much as slow the Creator down? If your Creator God has given you that land and promised to give it to you and to defeat those armies and those giants, what's going to stop Him? Look at what He's done. He's invincible. Brothers and sisters, we are meant, you are meant to do. drink in that same encouragement for whatever fears you might be facing. Your God, says our text, your God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing your God cannot do. You might be in some trouble right now. A crisis might be looming in your life, in your health, in your marriage, in your family or your work. Throw yourself in prayer upon the graces of this god trust him your covenant god and do not be afraid for he is with you he's with you even the very last enemy death itself cannot cut you off from his love you know on a a broader level we're all facing some level of uncertainty in our culture and times aren't we? we we're facing a general election right now in canada And the direction of our nation is in question. The direction of the Western world is in question. We don't always understand. We don't even know, maybe, what's going on behind the scenes. There seems to be certain forces at work behind the scenes trying to fundamentally alter the way we live our lives, trying to even alter the freedoms we have. Hard to know. These forces, whatever they are, we cannot see them much less control them, and so we can feel discouraged, anxious, even despairing. Brothers and sisters, don't despair. Don't be anxious either. For this God, creator of the heavens and the earth, He's your God, and He marches on ahead of you if the physical darkness has to give way to light at the command of God, then whatever spiritual, spiritual darkness may be trying to overcome and descend upon us, it will not be able to snuff out God's light either. Jesus is the light of the world. And John says in his opening verses, the darkness has not overcome the light. The darkness cannot overcome the light. So take your courage in your God, who is before all, who is above all, who has specifically shaped all of creation so that He might see it filled with life to thrive and flourish for His glory. That's what God's after. For once God shaped creation in those opening three days into a space that could hold and sustain life. He went on to fill the earth With living creatures in the last three days. By the end of day six, there were all kinds of things that were moving and shaking on earth, and even in the heavens above. The account of creation is written from the perspective of someone standing on the earth, even though there was no human, but that's how God gave it to Moses. And we read in verse 14 that God created the lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. Moses says further that God made two great lights: the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. And also the stars God created. So before day, this day, day four, the sky above was was pretty empty. There might have been some clouds because of creation on day two. The waters above were, were clouds, but but apart from that, there was, there was no sun, there was no moon, there was no stars. But now, now someone standing on the earth, had there been there, someone standing there, would see a sun, sun up, sun down. It would see the moon going across the sky. And at night, behind the moon are, are stars, countless stars twinkling in the background. To someone watching from the ground, it would look like the night sky and the day sky had come alive. There are moving lights in the sky. And this this is God's way of saying, I'm I'm in control even of these heavenly spheres. It's even so that I created light separate from these heavenly spheres, separate from the sun, moon, and stars. Maybe you noticed that. Light was created on the first day, but the sun, moon, and stars didn't come until day four. Some people think, you know, that's a problem. How can that be that there would be light when there was no sun or stars or moon? Some people think that's a reason to regard all of chapter 1 as something that's not really history. But tell me, brothers and sisters, why should that be a problem for the almighty, omnipotent Creator? Why is it a problem for Him to create light from nothing and just... Hold it in his hand if he wanted to, or park it somewhere else if he needed to. This is the God who shines forth brilliant light from his very being. God truly is the light of the world. He doesn't need the sun, moon, and stars. He's happy to make use of them. He created them for, as instruments to regulate the cycle of morning and evening. But when Jesus returns, brothers and sisters, the sun and the moon and the stars, they're going to be retired from service. Revelation tells us that. We read that text. The Lamb of God is going to light up the world. We don't need no lamp or flashlight or sun or moon or stars. So very, very subtly but unmistakably, this creation account is saying to the Israelites under Moses, let's think of them for a moment, and to us today, there is no other God besides Yahweh. So give your heart to Him alone. Don't go in for what the the pagans are doing. You know what the pagans were doing? They were worshiping all kinds of false gods, and they tended to focus on the creatures of the earth, or the fish in the sea, or the heavenly spheres, sun, moon, and stars. We read about some of that in, in Deuteronomy 4, where Moses warns them not to bow down to any of these idols. He says, don't bow down to the likeness of any animal or winged bird or any fish that is in the water under the earth. And then Moses adds, "...and beware lest you raise your eyes up to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven." The Lord who rescued you out of Egypt the Lord, who, who, whose voice you heard speak to you from the fire on top of Mount Sinai, He is God alone. Look to Him and look to Him alone. You know, it seems maybe strange to us, but in the ancient world, the sun was worshipped quite a bit, as was the moon. The Egyptians were big sun worshippers. The Chaldeans, where Abraham came from, they were big moon worshippers. But Genesis 1 says, oh, don't be foolish. God created the sun. It's just an instrument. God created the moon. It's just a vehicle for Him. Servants. So don't be in awe of them. And you know, many pagans, they believe the waters of the sea were were run by powerful gods and inhabited by powerful monsters that had mythical qualities, legends, divine in themselves and and those seafaring folk of the ancient world they lived in fear of these underwater gods but the holy spirit says in our text verse uh, on day five that god created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm so my people you don't need to be afraid of what lives in the sea And you certainly don't need to worship them. And you know, the Philistines and the Moabites had their Baals and Asherah idols, which they believed represented gods living in the sky, who controlled the rain and who controlled the soil and the growth and productivity of the crops and of the animals and the flocks and of people who controlled the fertility. But listen to what verse 22 of our text says on day 5, And God blessed them the creatures of the sea and the sky, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. This is God blessing His creatures. He'll do it again on day six with humans. This is God who says, I give the growth. I'm the the creator of life. I create the conditions for life and I give the growth of life. Don't go in for the the Baals and the Asherahs and the Molechs and anything else. Don't be tempted, my people, to put trust in the imaginations of men, in the lies of foolish people, in these imaginary powers that don't exist. But look to me, your Maker, the true power who loves you. You know, it's a message still for us today. We aren't bowing down in that same way to handcrafted statues outside of little temples, but we have our gods nonetheless. Don't look to government. That's a god for a lot of people. Don't look to government to save you. Don't imagine that scientists or brainstorming engineers or genius inventors are going to provide health and wealth and safety and comfort and everything that's needed the big God today, you know what it is? It's humans. We're worshiping ourselves, human beings, and our ideas have become our gods. But like the ancient idols, they are also powerless to save. They're just creatures. We're all just creatures. Look instead to the maker of humans, beloved, to the creator of all things, to the God who was drawn near to you and to me, to the God who gave his son. To death, so that you could have life. Listen to him say to you, Look, I, I created you. I, I love you. I have rescued you in my son, and I promise to look after you while I go about fulfilling my plan to redeem and restore all this fallen creation. Trust me. Trust me alone. God has a plan. And our text shows He's a God who plans. There's a timeline. Genesis 1 is where history starts. That's another distinct contrast with the pagans. You know, pagan religions of ancient times, and even still today, they imagine time as something circular. It just goes around and around. It's repetitive, and it has no purpose because it just keeps cycling along It's infinite. I think there's even a movie coming out with that title. It's infinite. To unbelievers, things occur in these endless cycles and are filled with meaningless repetition. Think of the idea of reincarnation, popular among the Hindus. It goes on and on, no end, no purpose. But our text reveals that the Creator has a definite plan and a definite timeline. We've got here the beginning of creation. History is, is linear. Day one translates or transmutes into day two. And after day two comes day three. It's not circular, there's movement forward. We're heading to something. History had a beginning and history will have an end. In those six days, God moved toward a goal. He took the earth from a world that was unfit for life. And He made it into a world teeming with life and love. And this same God is now, in Christ Jesus, He's busy recreating the world. Taking creation from a world of rebellion to a world that will be in submission to Him. From a place that right now was filled with rust and rot and death to a place that will be teeming with wholeness and healing and life. This awesome master of creation, beloved, is also your invincible redeemer. He's your savior. So, so why then be afraid? Why be anxious about these, whatever's going on in our society, why be anxious about that? Do what you can do and leave it with the Lord because this Lord trumps everything. What truly can go wrong when this, your God, is in control? What can go wrong? Amen.